This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. A good Thursday to you on this August 4th. Ryan Jesperson here, John Hicks riding shotgun, the technical producer of the show. How the heck are you, pal? I'm doing good. I love rainy days. In our neck of the woods, it is a rainy day. (laughs) I had my outfit picked out. We've got some, uh, you know, high profile interviews today. So I thought I'd wear a collared shirt. And then I looked out the window and saw the the overcast nature of what appears to be our weather related fate for today. And I thought, (laughs) nah, it's a hoodie day. It's a hoodie day Uh, in our neck of the woods to get local for a second. The Edmonton Folk Music Festival kicks off tonight and everybody's excited for the return of probably, uh, I would say, the highest profile summer festival in Edmonton. Sure. But the folks at Heritage Festival might take issue with me and some of the others. And I'm not trying to pick a fight, but the Folk Music Festival returns tonight. And so I think everybody's hoping that whatever the sky has in store, whatever these clouds are holding, that we can can get it all dumped out during the day so Mm -hmm. everybody can have that sort of post-rain, beautiful folk festing type condition this evening. So... That's going to be a good one. A great show in store today. We're going to follow up one of the things that we promised to do for you, the audience here on Real Talk. And I love this. I, I, I saw a tweet from Charles Adler, who joins us on Mondays. Uh, I saw a tweet from Chuck literally 30 seconds before we went on the air. So let me read this. And I, he's been such a great friend to the show and always such an encouragement in my career and in my personal life. And uh, Adler just tweeted something. He says that real talk is the best talk in Canada without interruptions from the same news, traffic and weather, the same callers and the same commercials. It's fresh content and no pressure to be polite to dullards. Wow. And I thought that's a bit of an endorsement. I appreciated that. Thanks, and Chucky. uh yeah, thanks, Chuck. And we'll talk to him again on Monday. He's all wound up about our Christy Clark interview yesterday. I look forward to talking to him about that. And then I saw that if you follow Adler on Twitter, this is turning into a big commercial for Charles Adler. That's great and that's fine. You should follow him on Twitter at Charles Adler. He's sharing his thoughts on this Alex Jones story as well. You know the the conspiracy theorist probably the most famous one in the world, or at least the richest one in the world, we've learned, the host of InfoWars. He's got millions of viewers, millions of fans. You know this, but a lot of people had maybe wondered about the the bottom line of a business like that, or what would someone like Alex Jones actually make? What would his profit look like? It's a gross question to ask, but what sort of a profit margin would you glean, would you enjoy, could you rake in from... For example, suggesting that a mass shooting at an elementary school at Sandy Hook 10 years ago was a hoax, was a fake, that the parents were actors, and that this was all a plan that was cooked up to influence and impact gun control debates in the United States. Of course, you know you've got a, got a, you got a lot of gun nuts that might latch on to that, plus the people that would be inclined to believe conspiracy theories in general or more specifically around mass shootings. And then you'd have people who just find Alex Jones entertaining, like Joe Rogan, who has a clip out. People have probably seen it. If you've been on social media, if you've been following this story, you've no doubt probably seen what the Joe Rogan experience host had to say about this. He goes, what's so wrong about what Alex Jones is doing? It's entertaining. Well, the Sandy Hook parents, for example, think that there's something pretty wrong with it. 
He's profiting as he dances on the graves of their children, children who died under heinous and horrific circumstances. I don't even know if I have the ability to get into talking about what it would be like to be a parent of a student, an elementary school student who died in a mass shooting, in a horrific school shooting. I can't imagine the motivation that parents would have, parents like Scarlett Lewis and Neil Heslin, whose six-year-old was killed, they're the ones that have kicked off this $150 million defamation lawsuit. It's a jury trial, by the way, in Austin, Texas. Yesterday, and keep in mind that Alex Jones has already been found guilty. He's already been found guilty a couple of times, but this one's the big one. People are saying this is the one, this is the trial where Alex Jones in the state of Texas could lose his fortune. He says that anything more than $2 million, any judgment more than $2 million would wipe him out. He says it would kill InfoWars, it would wipe him out. Well, documents yesterday presented in court after we went off the air. I was waiting all afternoon yesterday, Real Talkers, to be able to join you and get into this again. I'm sure you're following this story. Documents revealed yesterday show that at some points at InfoWars height, Alex Jones was making $800,000 a day from supporters who were sending in their money, who were sending in their support to see this show continue. And in probably what is one of the most dramatic developments of any high-profile trial in the world over the past number of years, it was revealed yesterday, did you see this, that Alex Jones' lawyers inadvertently and accidentally released documentation of everything on Alex Jones' phone to the other side, Hmm. to the prosecution. Everything. And so Alex Jones, for example, had been claiming under oath as part of this trial that he didn't remember, he couldn't recall any emails that had anything to do about Sandy Hook when the contents of his phone, including his text messages, were released, of course, There were heaps and heaps of incriminating records leaving Alex Jones stunned in court yesterday. I mean, people are watching these proceedings and you should have seen legal commentators, some of the most prominent ones in the United States saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Absolutely flabbergasted. And then there was this from the judge presiding over the trial, Judge Maya Guerrera Gamble. (laughs) This is remarkable stuff. I wanted to share it with you. Have a listen. You may not say to this jury that you complied with discovery. That is not true. You may not say it again. You may not tell this jury that you are bankrupt. That is also not true. Already under oath to tell the truth. You've already violated that oath twice today in just those two examples. It seems absurd to instruct you again that you must tell the truth while you testify yet here i am you must tell the truth while you testify this is not your show do you understand what i have said yes i believe what i said was true so i don't yes you believe everything you say is true but it isn't your beliefs do not make something true that is that is what we're doing here It is not allowed. Just because you say or believe something is true, it doesn't make it true. 
You cannot say that you complied with discovery, provided the evidence, provided the materials, provided what you'll be arguing. If you didn't, you cannot claim you're bankrupt if you're not. Well, I believed it to be true. I mean, what do you expect a guy like Alex Jones to say? So this is fascinating stuff. They're seeking $150 million. I mean, if you do the math, if you think about it, InfoWars in its heyday could have been collecting $300 million a year. You know, $150, $200 million a year at least if you're looking at some of the numbers. So who knows what to believe about anything that Alex Jones has ever argued. That feels to me to be the most obvious thing that I've ever said on the show. But if you're like me, you're watching this trial unfold. If you're like me, you probably take issue with people like Alex Jones who steer the easily influenced into really dangerous areas, right? Part of the bigger problem, one of the problems that we discuss often on shows like this. You can send us your thoughts in just a second. Robin Doolittle's been doing unbelievable work for the Globe and Mail, an investigative journalist there. She's going to bring us up to speed on the Hockey Canada story. Before we get there, we want to remind you that Apex Automation is putting out the call for Canada's best engineers right now. If you know you're good at what you do, if you're an engineer in Canada, but you just don't feel like your current situation, your current employer is providing the opportunities that you need to feel fulfilled to reach your maximum potential in your career, why not check out apexautomation.ca today? You can achieve great things as part of a team that's committed to helping their clients get back their time. You're going to enjoy flexible hours, professional development opportunities, a great corporate culture. Check out apexautomation.ca today. Our friends at Kubi Energy oftentimes have the same message for us. They want us to remind you that because of the growth of their business, because of the growth of solar in Canada, they're always looking for skilled installers. These are apprentices and journeyman electricians. You don't want to work in BC, you could be headquartered out of Kamloops. You want to work in Edmonton or Alberta, you could be headquartered out of their head office. But they also want to remind you bigger picture. Maybe the employment side's not what you're interested in. How much do you know about this $40,000 interest-free loan the federal government's making available, this Greener Homes Grant? They've got all the details covered. They can fill out the paperwork for you. You could have solar panels up on your roof before the snow falls if you go get your free quote today from kubienergy.ca. And a shout-out to our friends at Friesen Brothers that want to remind all of us that coming up on August 16th, August 16th is World Bratwurst Day. And they've got Ivan's Sausages. This is the traditional recipe developed by a legendary butcher, their pal Ivan, out of the Hinton store. No, the Hannah store. Pardon me. 16 Friesen Brothers stores to keep track of. More than 65 years they've been doing business in Alberta, putting good food around the family dinner table. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Well, this story is certainly the top or at least among the top stories in Canada, and probably the one having the biggest impact on Canadians because it hits to the heart of probably Canada's most popular sport. Who doesn't feel a connection to hockey in some way, shape, or form? But allegations involving at least two of Canada's national world junior teams have rocked this country to its core. Robin Doolittle has been covering this as an investigative journalist at the Globe and Mail, kind enough to join us this morning on Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us, Robin. Yeah, thanks for having me. You had an opportunity to speak to the 
the woman uh, involved uh, in these uh, allegations, this alleged assault in 2018, known as EM, an opportunity for you to sit down with her as she broke her silence. How did this interview come about? It sounds like she never wanted this to go as public as it's gone. To go public at all. Um, when you ask how it, it came about, it's just kind of weeks of, of kind of conversations with her lawyer. Um yeah, as you mentioned, this she she's never spoken out before. Uh, this story broke in May twenty uh, sixth, I believe. TSN broke the story, and this was about a month after she filed a lawsuit against Hockey Canada and others over this alleged group sex assault by members of some of the twenty eighteen junior gold medal winning team, and she, again, she had never wanted this to get out there. She wanted it handled privately. And over the course of the, these two months, the case has really spiraled into this national scandal. You've got federal hearings. You've got an investigation from Hockey Canada, from the NHL, a reopened police investigation. Um, as we've been covering it, we've, we've been going to them for comment on, on each of the, the updates, including a story a couple of weeks ago where lawyers for some of the players uh, provided the Globe with videos that were shot that night in a text message exchange. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But through all of it, they've declined because they said they didn't want to add any fuel to the flames. But finally, they kind of reached a point where they felt, you know, this this was time to insert some, some facts to some of the misinformation that's been floating out there. Yeah. The, one of the things that uh, I only know this based on your reporting, and you've been doing a great job with this story, but, but EM she says that she's felt vulnerable and she's felt exposed and that the story has been told in pieces. And it strikes me uh, based on your report that a big part of that she feels maybe misrepresented with regards to the degree of her participation with the police investigation. Uh, can you comment on that? Even, even more specifically, just a few days ago, it sounds like she or her legal team, they initiated a polygraph exam. Sounds like she's wanting to get ahead of some of these uh, misconceptions, maybe that she desired no involvement in the investigative side of this. Yeah. So on the police front, I mean, that was, I think, a huge motivator of deciding to speak to me. Um, they said that it's been very frustrating to see that that uh, narrative circulate that she didn't cooperate with police. And I, I think a source of that misinformation is actually Hockey Canada itself, um, apparently an honest mistake, but a mistake nonetheless. When the story broke in May, they released a statement that said, you know, we were aware of these these allegations four years ago. We hired a law firm, Hennon Hutchinson, to investigate the allegation. But the person who um, brought the report forward had declined to cooperate with police or our investigator, and we respect her wishes on this front. So that's what Hockey Canada said at the time. But that wasn't true. And that is something that we that I discussed with with EM and her and her lawyer, Rob Tullock. Um, you know, they went through a, or he went through a, a, a series of, of uh, interactions that she had with police. So this um, incident allegedly occurred the early morning of June 19, 2018. By uh, June 22nd, she uh, had spoken with a detective. Two days later, she made it clear she wanted the police to pursue charges. Two days after that, she spoke with investigators again. She went to hospital and had a physical exam. She provided 
uh, her clothing to police as evidence, uh, clothing from that night. She spoke again with police in August 2018 and then again in February 2019 when she was told that the case would be closed. So lots of cooperation there. Um, Her lawyer says she did take a couple of days to kind of consider her options, which is very common for a sexual assault complainant. Um, And and as you mentioned, the, the polygraph test, Yeah. So after she met, she met with police last week. And then on Thursday, her lawyer, uh, her legal team arranged and paid for a polygraph test. The test was conducted by a former London police examiner. um, And and she was found to be truthful in telling her statement. Now, polygraphs are, you know, not admissible evidence as as uh, credibility polygraph results, I should say, in court. And it certainly wouldn't speak to, even if she's being truthful, this question, which is kind of at the heart of this, is can the hockey players argue that they honestly and reasonably believe that she was consenting to the sexual activity? Um, But where I found it really interesting is that she felt the need to do this, that this narrative has spiraled so far out of her um, where she ever envisioned it or wanted it to go, that she felt the need to take this step um, to do what what she could to try to reclaim some of the story. Yeah, no kidding. And, and whether or not it's admissible in court, uh, maybe the court of public opinion is something completely different. And 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 for for the general public to understand or to know that she, I know this isn't the phrase necessarily you use, but that she <laughs> passed she passed a polygraph exam. I think that goes a long way with regards to how the average person might understand or or might might sort of process the details of a story. Right. Uh, Polygraphs are problematic from a scientific perspective. I do want to make that clear, but I agree that I think in the, and this is why I thought it was important to mention in the story, as well as they thought it was really important, that in the court of of public opinion, which is really where this this story is playing out, Mm -hmm. um, that that it seemed like a a necessary step. And it's not one that other, you know, sexual assault survivors or victims or complainants have felt that they needed to take as well, right or wrong. That is a fact that that some people have done that. And it, it does change people's minds again for right or wrong but she took this she took this this step to kind of get out there robin the 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 videos and the text messages that you report on are are uh well geez i don't even know the the (laughs) adjective to use because they're they're kind of well i'll let you tell the story so the lawyers (laughs) representing the players have provided these videos to you and 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 some of the 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 transcript of these videos is 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 striking. Something. It's really something, yeah, isn't something. it? Yeah. So uh, about maybe two weeks ago, lawyers representing some of the players provided the Globe and Mail to my colleagues, Joe Friesen and Colin Fries with um, access to two videos that were shot the night of the alleged incident and also a text message exchange that occurred a little over a day after the alleged incident. And yeah, there's something. So the videos, there's two of them. One is six seconds long. One is 12 seconds long. The first was shot around 3.30 in the morning. And the second was shot around 4.30 in the morning. It's so about an hour later. And in the first video, um, EM is seen from kind of the neck up and she says, I'm okay with this. And in the second video, she is in a towel in this hotel room. Um, and she says, yes, this was consensual. I enjoyed it. It's fine. You're being paranoid. I'm sober. And uh, the lawyers were presenting this, these videos as, um, as evidence that, that this was, in fact, consensual, that this was, in fact, um, an experience that, uh, that EM, was, she was not intimidated or intoxicated. Um, so what's significant here? Let's like back up for a second. In, in Canada, the, the law is 
consent can only be given at the time of sexual contact. So you can't give it before, you can't get it after. There's also something in the criminal code that says you it's not a valid consent if you're only consenting out of out of fear, right. right? I'm paraphrasing a bit here. Now, I don't know if that's the case in this situation, but what I can tell you is that in EM's statement of claim, she says that, just to remind your listeners in case they're not totally familiar with this, is that she met a player and some of his teammates at a bar on this night and that she they were drinking and they were she was they were buying her shots and drinks and she was quite drunk and then she went back to the first player's hotel room and they had consensual sex. Um, but when they were finished without her knowledge or consent, she alleges that this player then brought his teammates into the room and that from then on for several hours, she was sexually abused and assaulted by the, by some of these players and that she was filled with terror during this experience, that she tried to leave on several occasions, that she was crying, but they, I'm going to mess up the, the quote, but that they you know manipulated and directed her to stay and that they directed her to shoot this video and, and say she was sober. So Anyway, I think the the big takeaway here is, and certainly this is what, what EM's lawyer said, is um, if you don't have doubts about the consent of your partner, why are you shooting a video? Mm. So again, we don't know what happened, but I, I think for me, when I, when I look at this, uh, my takeaway is, you know, the best case scenario here is not a great one. Mm. Right. Like that's whether it crosses into the criminal threshold, whether, you know, these players, they might honestly um, and reasonably have believed that she that she was consenting. But, um, you know, based on her statement of claim that this is this was a very scary event for her, at least as she's looking back to it. I mean, yeah, the string of text messages even that you report on, you know, she's she's going back and forth with the player. At one point, she says, quote, I was really drunk uh, or he says, you said you were having fun. She says, I was really drunk. I didn't feel good about it after at all, uh, but I'm not trying to get anyone in trouble. She says, I was okay with going home with you. It was everyone else afterwards that I wasn't expecting. I felt like I was being made fun of and taken advantage of. And I don't think that you have to be EM. You don't necessarily even have to be a sexual assault survivor. Uh, It might be a little bit more difficult for men in a position of privilege or hockey players to wrap their minds around how terrifying that might be. But that's also part of the problem, isn't it? Isn't that part of the problem of what we're talking about now is this culture? And and, and maybe not even just limited to hockey. We've got so many. We've had more audience feedback and emails on this story than we have in any story in months. And what a lot of people are writing in, a lot of people are being very critical about hockey culture. But a lot of other people are also saying this isn't limited to just hockey. We need to have a bigger conversation about young men and boys and rape culture. And we need to talk about sports in general or celebrity or the life of a so-called rock star or how men perceive conquest or like, and these are like occurring to me. These are real quotes from emails that people have sent us. Yeah. I and mean, it's really lit a fire under people. Yeah. And I mean, that is a good thing. And Ian, one thing that EM said to me is that, you know, as much as she didn't want this out there, she is hopeful that it leads to change. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think what you bring up is a really important point because these, while the focus is on these players, um, you know, this is not an isolated incident here, that this is part of a broader um, a systemic issue. And uh, 
you know, there's been, there was a, you know, a book written about sexual violence in junior hockey in the 1990s. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it was by Laura Robinson, Lauren Robinson. Um, and, you know, this is, this is longstanding and it's exactly what you say. It's part of a broader conversation. And it's also, it comes back to our understanding of consent. And, you know, this, when, when, certainly something I've talked a lot about in the work that I've done and, and research that I've done. Um, if you think about consent as purely a, I don't want to get arrested. Yeah. You're, you're in, you're in bad territory, like right? A, this like is a about, box to tick, right? It's a box. It, exactly. To tick off. Yeah. So that, and I think also, I mean, the, the videos, again, they're not legal, um, proof of consent, but I think that someone might think that they are like, Oh, as long as, as long as she says it's okay, uh, as long as she's saying yes, then then it's fine. And, you know, in a court of law, look, sure, that might pass muster. But is that the kind of person you want to be if someone is actually, I really don't want this. I feel uncomfortable. I'm, you know, like there's lots of experience. I think a lot of women can relate to this too, frankly, um, of experiences where you go along with something because you don't want to be rude or you don't you don't know how to say you know, I really, I'm not okay with this, or uh, you're just like processing something in the moment, you're not thinking it through. It's not rising to the the level of criminal sexual assault, but it's not great, right? And it's not good. That's not where I think, I don't think men want to be either, I, I hope. So I think that that is kind of the the next layer of conversation that we need to have around this this wider issue. And certainly, as you say, sports culture. I mean, anyone who's grown up in a in a town, unless I did a small town where hockey was big, you know, the, the, the locker room stuff is really, uh, horrifying in some ways. And, and a lot of these players go through hazing and abuse. That's abhorrent as well. And it's all, it's all part of the same cycle. So, um, yeah, I mean, we are long overdue for a major conversation about, uh, about this stuff. I remember a friend of mine played for the Regina Pats back in the day, and he was NHL first round pick. And he told me about his rookie year in Regina. And this is a star player coming in, a you know highly touted sixteen year old player coming in, and his initiation was horrific. It's uh, disgusting. And, and Robin, it was—it's not my story to tell, but it was—it was sexually invasive. It was horrible. It was—he was—he was rattled. He pretended like he wasn't, but I've known him since we were six. He was rattled. Oh, of course he would be. And I mean, this is what the, the book that was written in the 90s is about is that um, and I'm not saying this is the case in, in stories we've heard about. I want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but the book in the 90s talks about, you know, the the stuff that these players go through is is part of the team hazing experience. And then they, you know, transfer it on. Right. You're trying to normalize what happened to you feel OK about it. You know, this dominating um this urge to dominate and your masculinity um, that you can prove, uh, you know, through these experiences or bond with your teammates. Um, It's yeah, it it is a cycle, as I said. And I I should say, just if any of your listeners are, are, um, are thinking that some, if if this has happened to you, uh, I would be interested in speaking with you. It's our do little at globalmail.com. If you don't mind me doing a little um, plug for that. I mean, I am interested in hearing these, these types of stories. And I know this has been going on for a long time. And I think, 
I think it's important to to broaden it out beyond just this this one case that's gotten so much attention. Yeah, you can follow Robin uh, Robin Doolittle on Twitter as well. Uh, let me just ask you this in closing. I know you got to go. We appreciate your time. Um, this is uh, like, and I've said on the record, like I play hockey. I played hockey yesterday. My son plays hockey. I love hockey. I go to hockey games. I used to work for the Edmonton Oilers. Like, like I'm a big hockey guy. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm not I'm not here to just take big pot shots at hockey or to smear hockey. Uh, but I will acknowledge this that. The guys that I play with and friends of mine and people that have played hockey, major junior hockey, that have played pro hockey, acknowledge, and and not in a dismissive way, quite the opposite as a matter of fact, they acknowledge that while there are allegations swirling around, Robin, you and I are talking about the 2018 team and the 2003 team, um, I don't think you need to compare sexual assault allegations, but the 2003 story is 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 horrific. Uh, it, it's, it's so, I don't know if you say it's worse, but it's different, but it's horrific. But it, a lot of the people, including big hockey fans are looking at this and saying, this isn't like just these two teams. Um, and you know, even commenters right now, audience members that are watching you on the show right now, like Jillian, she says, nope, she says this happens all the time. Like we're talking about 2003, 2018. Sure. But Jillian says, no woman is surprised. Like what set the fire here is learning that Hockey Canada has been so complicit in having the backs of men who will abuse women and then helping them cover it up. And of course, this this I'm being lazy in my phrase here, but like the slush fund, this contingency fund that has paid out millions of dollars to settle sexual assault claims in some circumstances, multiple claims against single individuals has taken this story to a whole new level because now Canadian hockey parents are wondering, did my registration fees, did our bingo fundraisers go to f- settle sexual assault claims? And people are having a, a really hard That's, time with I that. Mean, and they did. So yeah, where does globe, this, you I mean, know. Yeah, the Globe wrote about this. The, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, the, the National Equity Fund. It's It was built up. The, this is a Globe and Mail story by my colleague, Grant Robertson. It was built up through, in part through registration fees. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. This is no, it's fine. It's fine. And I, and I don't necessarily even have a question out of it, I guess, is to ask you. And I mean, your job as a journalist, I know you probably don't want to speculate too much. But the question really is, I mean, some people are saying like, you, like, first of all, Hockey Canada's executive needs to step down. You've got a CEO that's only been there for a month. He's saying he's not going anywhere. People are saying it requires a rebrand. It requires a rebuild. We've got to reestablish. And then, you know, everyone has their different understanding. I mean, the World Juniors are about to drop the puck on it like this week in Edmonton. Uh, and I don't know how ticket sales are going for that, but I would imagine there's optical challenges around that tournament too, right? Where does it go from here? You know, uh, as you mentioned, I am I'm a journalist. I'm covering this, so I'm you know trying to yeah. limit what I can say. But here's what here's what I will say. I think to a point that you raised at the very beginning of what we were talking about that you love hockey and um, and I think hockey is really important to a lot of people in this country, which is why this this story is resonating so much. And I would say, you know, if you if you love something, love it enough to make it better. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's no need to be defensive because that's not going to get us anywhere like this, I think, clearly is not OK. Um, and again, when I'm talking about the best case scenario here isn't OK, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about a, a criminal um, threshold because we don't know. But, yeah, if you love something truly love it enough to make it the best it can be. I think you hit the nail on the head, Robin. Um, I've been a big fan of, of your work for a long time, and it's a real honor to have you here on the show. Keep up uh, the amazing report. I know this is a tough story to cover, uh, but you've obviously earned the trust of EM here, enough that she's sitting down to talk to you. People can read your reporting at theglobeandmail.com. 
including your story published just a couple of days ago, the woman at the center of the Hockey Canada scandal breaks silence. We've been talking to investigative journalist Robin Doolittle. Let's keep in touch, Robin. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You bet. And again, if you have a personal story to share, you'd be willing to talk to Robin. You can find her on Twitter at Robin Doolittle, and she has her email address right there in her bio. You can let us know how you're making sense of this story, how you're sorting it out. What I'm really interested to hear, uh, you know, people will say, like, how did this land in your circle? I, I, I try to find these balances, right? It's, uh, I don't know what it's like being friends with you, John, and, and people talk and share things with you. And then we're here on the show having this real talk and these real conversations. And I think, ooh, that talk I had with person X yesterday really fits into this. Yeah. Or person Y told me something a few days ago that's really relevant to this. I never want to betray the trust of my friends. At the same time, I think that these conversations that we have give us a sense. I mean, this is how we perceive the world around us. Mm-hmm. This is almost kind of like the vibe or the feel of real talk that we want to have is if we were all together. I'm not trying to sound cheesy here, but really, if we were all together like having sandwiches or if we were sitting around a campfire, if we were hiking together, what would we be talking about? If we were sitting in a boat together fishing, how what would we be saying about the hockey canada story how would we so-called keep it real like what would our real thoughts be about this what are the people that adore the game of hockey how do they feel about it how do you feel when you see a team canada sweater right now Mm -hmm. like these are real questions and and we don't ask them rhetorically we want to know how you're wrapping your mind around it talk at ryanjesperson.com and we appreciate those of you who who take the time to, to share with us. Cheryl right now says, I had a friend in high school who played for the Moose Jaw Warriors uh, during the same years that, that Graham James was coaching the Swift Current Broncos and Theron Fleury was there and Sheldon Kennedy and, of course, others who, who didn't necessarily come forward. Dwayne says he remembers a hazing incident that had been recorded and left the victim permanently traumatized. He said that stuff happens in Canada, right? Brenda says... I think the organization needs a rebrand. My son has a Hockey Canada tattoo. Brenda, there's probably, like, honestly, with you, your son, right? There's probably, a, like, 500,000 people in Canada that have a Hockey Canada tattoo on their shoulder blade. Mm. You know, O2, and they, they break the gold medal curse, and, you know, Mario Lemieux, to, you know, whatever, Jerome McGinley, and Steve, I, you know, Joe Sackick, and, and then 2010, you know, Iggy to Crosby, the golden goal. Mm-hmm. And the World Juniors, Jonathan Taves scoring against the Russians, and... I mean, like all the, you know, Jordan Eberle and, uh, you know, Jonathan Taves shootout and like all all these moments, right? The mm-hmm. hockey fans, these these have been some of our most proud moments as hockey fans. But now you're second guessing them all. You're wondering what was going on. Or you're that. trying to reconcile. like, And even this year, like you want to support the team, but it, it just it, it just doesn't feel right right now. Doesn't and feel right. You're not painting those boys, those young men as being guilty of anything, but it's just it's hard to watch. It's hard to support anything with hockey Canada right now it's 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 like the timing of it all the timing of it all there, there's this there's a police investigation that's been restarted and again this is an active story so we don't cover all our bases when we have 15 minutes with someone like Robin we'll we'll ask as many questions as we can and we make a commitment to you that we'll continue to cover the story but but this is a developing story and it mm-hmm. just feels weird and and I also have conflicting feelings, quite frankly, because personal friends of ours and former colleagues of ours are involved in organizing and carrying out this tournament. Oh, and they're, 100%. they're so proud know, of the work that they do. We, You and I know dozens. I know the ones at the top dozens who are putting on this competition that is starting here in Edmonton. And I just I feel for them as well, because a lot of them, they have no connection to this. Right. Well, and they're but probably, there are people within the organization that do and need to be removed. Right. And so, so there's you're talking Hockey Canada. Yes, and, of course. 
you know, yeah, and there's billboards all around town. There's mm-hmm. probably billboards across Canadian cities, certainly here, because our home city is hosting it. Yeah. Like, just a guy in sunglasses, and like, come to, uh, you know, the World Juniors, and you don't blame them. I mean, you know, like, full disclosure, I was in talks with them to potentially be the in-game host for that tournament. Mm-hmm. You've been talking about, and... Uh, we didn't agree to contractual terms, and yeah. thank God we did it. <laughs> because you... I wouldn't have been able. I wouldn't have been able to do it. Obviously, I, obviously, and, and 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 like I just, you know, I mean, this is not the main issue, but the point is just like I'm I'm driving past these billboards. I drove past one yesterday, and I'm, my brain. And and again, I'm not trying to offend anybody that we personally know that works on this campaign, that works on this project. But I'm like, are we just pretending? Like, are we just going to pretend that nothing's going on right now? These billboards are like, come mm-hmm. see the like. Are we just pre- going to pretend mm-hmm. everything's fine? And I know that some people will say. You know, uh, Jeff Merrick is a a hockey podcaster. He does 32 Thoughts with Elliot Friedman. I listened to that podcast, and and Jeff was saying the other day, he said, I don't, Elliot, I I don't want to put words in their mouths, but they were debating whether or not Canada should participate in this tournament. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Merrick makes the argument, he says, yeah, Canada should. And he says, it's not these boys' fault. It's not fair to punish these boys. And I'm sitting there going, it's not about that. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not about that. You want to talk about unfair. (laughs) You want to talk about who the victim is. You know, and I think Robin's best point from today from the whole incident was at the very least asking someone for consent on a video. I mean, it just is getting her to shower before she leaves. And it's all just it just seems very it's not the way to go about. It's just. Yeah. What what gives me chills is the conversation where people will say, yeah, but like that's junior hockey. Like, you know, person A in the conversation, this is hypothetical, but someone will say, well, how could you think it was possibly okay to bring in like five or six of your friends into the room when the person you're with had not consented to that? There had not been discussion about that. You invite all your friends in and and then they start gearing down and then they start basically sexually abusing her. That's basically, let's call it what it was, right? How can you think that's okay? And then person B is going to sit there and go, but that's like, and whether you like it or not, and this is not justification for it, but people are like, yeah, but that's junior hockey. Yeah. People are like, these guys have been like conditioned. Like this was not just like this happened once in 2003 and this happened once in 2018 with 15 years in between. And oh my gosh, what was wrong with these two teams? That's not it. Mm-hmm. And I think if the floodgates really did open, and I'm doing a lot of speculation here, but I think it's informed speculation. Call it a gut instinct. I suspect that it's not limited to Hockey Canada. I suspect it's not limited to Canadian hockey players. And I suspect it's not limited to hockey. Mm -hmm. And, like, here's another gut feeling. Like, why can't we just teach young men, young boys, like, who cares if there was consent? If there's a bunch of men in a room with one woman and this stuff is happening, you're probably not in a good situation. And you should try and end it. You know what I mean? So Lauren says, I don't judge an entire organization by the actions of a few. Where would Catholics be if we did? People still go to church. Yeah. Lauren, love you. Don't know if I love the example. I don't judge individual Catholics, but I do judge the church, to be honest with you. Um, Brenda says, it's upsetting all those registration fees paid over the years, even by me. How about this from Jason? Who Jason throws a bullseye on this comment. He says, I feel badly for the women's national program at this time. No kidding. No kidding. 
Let us know what you think. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. I recognize when, and I don't do this sort of blindly bull in a china shop type style. I understand when we're asking you, tell us your story. Share your thoughts with us. For a lot of you, this is something that you're not yet prepared to talk about. And that's okay too. And there are many resources available, including I recommend personally, whether or not you live in Edmonton, the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton has great resources online that can get you pointed in the right direction if you are a survivor and if there's somebody that you would like to talk to. In a moment, we'll recap my interview yesterday with former BC Premier Christy Clark. Author Chris Turner is going to join us. He's got a brand new book coming out. I know Chris loves talking about the idea of ethical oil. He was one of the first people I thought of yesterday as that conversation was happening with former Premier Clark. That in just a second. Before we get there, speaking of energy, what's heating your home in the winter? What's powering your adventures in the summer? What company is providing the electricity to run your air conditioning unit on those 30-degree days? Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider, and they're in the business of electricity, natural gas, and internet. That triple banger combined, all three services into one, means you're going to save on administration fees. So why not compare rates today? What do you have to lose? I mean, take three minutes at parkpower.ca. Take a look at what you're paying currently and what you'd pay with them. Then remember that 10% of the proceeds, the profits from your electricity bill, they're going to redonate those. They're going to plug that back into the community. You get to pick which charity you want to benefit from a long list. I love that they do that. And the promo code 2022-REALTALK at sign up knocks $70 off your first bill. They're basically going to buy you dinner at parkpower.ca. Our friends at Local Environmental want to remind you that keeping it local includes your garbage and recycling collection. If you're a small business owner, maybe you're a restaurateur, maybe you work in retail, heck, maybe you're running a big swimming pool, or maybe you've got the city's biggest mall. Local waste covers it all across Alberta and Saskatchewan. It's not just garbage. They believe that communities deserve better. That includes better service, prices, and more support for local causes. Don't forget local environmental sponsors, Trash Talk. That's coming up tomorrow on the show. If you've got something you really need to get off your chest, send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you make a note that it's Trash Talk. That's presented by Local Environmental. And our friends at Sherwood Dodge want to remind you they have the province's best selection of Chrysler, Jeep, and Ram trucks. And that includes that Ram TRX. Big shout out to a pal of mine who unveiled his yesterday in the parking lot of the hockey arena. John, he pulled up in his TRX, 700 horsepower, no big deal. Had all the guys (laughs) drooling over it, this thing. He went with the nice, subtle color orange. So we had a little fun with him. Honestly, such a beautiful rig. Now, the TRX is going to be for some of you. And some of you looking at the price at the pumps are going to look for something a little more modest, shall we say. No matter what you're looking for, St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge will find you the perfect fit, either new or pre-owned. You can browse their inventory online, or, of course, you can go see them in person. You make sure you let them know that you're a real talker. We'll get to author Chris Turner in just a second. If you missed my conversation with former BC Premier Christy Clark yesterday, I encourage you to check it out in its entirety. We covered a ton of ground, including the argument for Canadian oil. Here's an excerpt. We need to be shipping our oil to the world today and our natural gas to the world today so that countries can depend on a democratic country with high environmental standards where workers go to get well-paid go home safe every day and don't have to depend on the autocracies 
and the the countries around the world that frankly just don't give a damn mm. about looking after the environment or the people that they that they serve. Yeah, I mean that's the whole ethical oil premise, like Ezra Levant's whole thing that, that, that you know you want to buy from Canada. I'm just not sure that anybody actually, quite frankly, gives a shit about that. Like including Irving Oil in Eastern Canada that imports all of it. So I mean it's, these are these are corporate decisions. These are profit driven decisions too. I mean, of course, the public, I guess, can vote with their wallets to a certain degree. Uh, Chris Turner is an award winning author and energy transition strategist based out of my hometown of Calgary. His latest book is How to Be a Climate optimist it's great to see your face again my man it's been too long how have you been doing all right good to see you again yeah good to see you too i want to get into the new book how to be a climate optimist because you don't always hear the word optimism when we talk about the future of planet earth but you say there is a blueprint or multiple blueprints for a better world we'll talk about that in just a second uh i maybe underestimated the amount of feedback we'd have yesterday following my chat with christy clark uh including the whole ethical oil thing but i bet you're not surprised no, it, it's definitely a thing people like to keep talking about uh, and it then have very strong opinions on. And I, I really, that's kind of the point. Like if the point of ethical oil, which was an idea that, you know, Ezra Levant put forward in a book, is it like 13 years ago now or whatever? If the point was to give conservative politicians and conservative voters, I guess also in Canada, a talking point that they could repeat back to each other over and over and over again, that nobody else has the slightest interest in then it's a, it's a huge success. But the goal was to actually, you know, seriously engage in a conversation about, uh, you know, about, about social justice and environmental issues and climate change and the position of oil and gas. I mean, have you ever, you know, when Canadians travel abroad, do people say, oh, you're from Canada, the ethical oil country. Mm. No one has ever that. So who's the audience is, is sort of the thing I always think when I say this. Who do you think you're talking to that you think this has any resonance at all. Nobody going to the pump anywhere in the world is thinking, I wonder which mix of countries happen to deliver the barrels that eventually got refined into what I'm currently putting in the car. Nobody. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's not there. We, we did a uh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to take us too far off track, although you and I have danced before. I think that we can get off track and find our way back on. But, sure. um, you know, beef had some branding issues. Uh, and, and beef wasn't nimble enough through the BSE crisis and certainly sustained some damage. But at the same time, if you look at the prior to that, the branding of Alberta beef was really good. It was sometimes questionable, as people discovered, by the way, that to qualify for Alberta beef, it only had to be slaughtered in Alberta, not raised in Alberta. But I digress. That's an investigative report for a different day. But the Alberta beef idea had people from across the country and, and ideally into the United States, maybe Japan and other international markets, specifically looking for beef from here it's like idaho potatoes or anything else along those lines right uh can oil and gas do that i mean there, you can't go to the pump and, and request canadian oil you can't request canadian gas it's not how it works so who was the campaign for was it for canadians to feel better about it themselves i mean that that's the the best possible spin you can put on it certainly when i hear people you know conservative politicians people who want to argue with me on twitter or whatever Talking about ethical oil, though, I think they, they, they seem to have convinced themselves it's an actual, you know, it, it, it could it could change the relationship with Canada and, you know, uh, you know, American, you know, the, the Biden administration making a decision about a pipeline or whatever. And in addition to the fact that it, it, it even on its own merits, it's not doing that. There's, there's this huge uh, uh, friction and dissonance. 
Because at the same time that the people are trumpeting ethical oil, they're sneering at climate le legislation. They're you know starting up you know million dollar war room to basically spread uh, uh, you know kind, kind of gussied up PR uh, on behalf of the industry. The the credibility isn't there to begin with, and then the ethical oil argument doesn't expand whatever little credibility there might be there. So it it really is just this this incredibly you know kind of inward looking conversation that it seems like some of the people having it have convinced uh, is interesting or, or useful or, or meaningful to anyone beyond them. And there's just zero evidence of that. We're more than a decade into it. So, you know, find a new line. I'm, I, you know, oil and gas does have a position in, in the, the, the global energy future. It absolutely does, oil especially. But that's not the way to engage in the conversation. The way to engage in the conversation is to be, you know, actively, you know, in support of, climate action to say, yeah, we want to be a huge part of the solution. The whole world's talking about carbon sequestration. That's a thing we can do. But that's not, that's never the first foot forward. The first foot forward is, you know, Trudeau and George Soros and whoever else decided to make us the bad guy and we're not actually a bad guy. Well, mm. that's not really the conversation that's happening anywhere else. So, so, you know, you're just talking to yourselves. I saw some as the conversation evolved and, and I want to be really clear of how much I appreciate people that engage with our content and, and don't just blindly lap it up and praise it we're totally fine with people being critical of what they hear on the show hell we're critical of a lot of the things that we hear on the show it's why we have the conversations uh, but people yesterday said you know the idea of ethical oil and, and you know and saying like you know it's just ethics doesn't sort of fit into the the uh you know the international economy of oil and gas and and even in passing i referenced to ms clark yesterday you know irving oil which imports its oil from the saudis to refine it on canadian soil that's a that's a business that's a family an enormous family business that makes that as a business as a profit driven decision they're not even using canadian crude and so i think that that says something but chris why do you think that the ethical argument doesn't land in oil and gas? Like, like there, there is a, a move in the population. Not everybody wants their fashion ethically sourced. I mean, this is so terrible. I'm wearing the Nike swoosh as I'm saying this to you, but I, I don't know who made this hoodie. Probably, I shouldn't even joke about it, but, but a lot of people want to make more ethical fashion decisions. Some people want to make more ethical food decisions decisions a lot of people seem to be making more ethical and informed food decisions why doesn't it imply why doesn't it apply to energy well i mean I think the, the the first reason is that the, the the nature of the energy business it's not nationally branded i mean you go to the grocery store and it says you know the, the you know these these berries came from mexico or or, or or these vegetables came from california or whatever there, there's a, there's an actual point of origin there that you as a consumer can engage in even then it's you know there's not that many people actually think that much about where their, their uh, food comes from, but you can at least, you can engage that conversation if you want. You can't go to the gas station and, and get like a clear origin story of your, of, of, of your oil. It just doesn't fit that spot in the, in the, in the sort of consumer culture we're in to, to begin with. And then the second piece of it, of course, is that the, the oil industry is, you know, global and multinational. I mean, you know, Canadian ethical oil is, you know, is, is uh, uh, drilled and, and mined and refined by companies that have oil interests and, and, and oil plays all over the world. So are you an ethical oil player if you're very ethical in Canada because you have to follow the guidelines we have, but then you know, in other parts of the world where there's very, very little in the way of environmental or, or, or other uh, regulation, you just play by those rules. And so it just, there's, there's so many ways for this conversation to just not, not kind of resonate with anyone. It doesn't, it doesn't kind of, 
uh, it doesn't reconcile itself to a consumer decision. And so if that's not the goal, then the goal maybe is to, you know, policymakers or, or investors or whatever. And the conversations that policymakers and investors in most of the world are having are not about the, you know, that, that frame of ethical oil. It's carbon emissions, it's climate change, it's, you know, environmental damage. And they're not afraid of having those conversations in the oil industry, not in my experience anyway, but they don't have them in terms of this idea that Canada is more ethical than, you know, than Saudi Arabia or whatever. I mean, that, that's just, the, that, that has nothing to do with how these, these, these conversations are being had. And basically, like, to my mind, basically, you know, Alberta in particular, somewhat unfairly uh, was sort of held up. The, the oil sands were absolutely seized upon by environmental activists around the world as this sort of very, very useful symbol of the industry's damage as a whole. That wasn't entirely fair to that industry, but it happened. And what, that what was unfair was about it, Chris? What was unfair about it? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, just for it, it, it was not a whole picture. I mean, basically the, you know, you have the, the, the picture of the giant open pit mines. If you've never seen an open pit mine before, you think, oh my God, that must be the worst thing in the world. That's honestly what most open pit mines look like. That's what a copper mine looks like. And you know, we, we, we don't have a, an anti-copper uh, uh, global environmental movement of the, same, of the same force. Also, I mean, you know, this would be the kind of thing, you know, someone in the oil sands industry would point out, you know, the majority of their oil doesn't even come from uh, mining anymore. It comes from in-situ drilling, which looks a lot like uh, other kinds of oil uh, drilling around the world. So, uh, and part of the reason why the ethical oil argument doesn't work, uh, the industry in, in Alberta is responding to global market demand and global market pressures, same as anywhere else. And so I think that there was this understandable sense of we are being singled out for being, you know, way off the map bad about this, and we're not. And that led, I think, to folks in Alberta, particularly Canadian conservatives generally, to think, oh, we can just... That, 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 you know, we can just we can just overwhelm that argument with our own rather than trying to engage that argument and bring it back to some sort of common ground. And more than a decade on now that it's just a thoroughly failed strategy. Huh. I don't you know, I don't you know, my, my politics are pretty obvious if you follow me on Twitter. I'm not a big fan of most Canadian conservatives, but even by their own merits, you're not winning that political debate with that argument. You've been you've been using it for more than a decade and no one outside your tent cares. Yeah, I get the idea of uh, advocating for an industry. I mean, I, I personally believe, I think that a government, you know, needs to play a role in being so-called business friendly or, or having policy that can allow for the attraction of investment or things like that. But I don't think it's necessarily government's job to advocate for the oil and gas industry. I think that that was one of the reasons why people were critical of the so-called war room in Alberta. I think another reason was just based on what it was called and how it was presented like, you know, the premier kind of like rattling his saber and like trying to instill fear in environmentalists and like people who come at us are going to pay the price. It was kind of the fuck around and find out like that's basically the promise that Jason Kenney made to people. Um, yeah. But advocacy is nothing new. Industries yeah. advocate. I industries advertise and market themselves. There's nothing new about that. But I think it was like the combative nature of the war room that didn't work. The fact that they would go after journalists, the fact that they they targeted the New York, the New York Times and tried to sort of present it as uncredible. I mean, it was just embarrassing itself. The war room was embarrassing itself. So it didn't work. 
but what would positive advocacy look like? You acknowledged five minutes ago that you said there's certainly a future for oil. I think that the average, I mean, unless you're delusional, I think you acknowledge that oil and gas has not hit its horizon yet. That there's still got to be decades of relevance for that industry. So what does informed, effective advocacy look like on behalf of the thousands and thousands of Canadians who work in this industry? Well, I mean, I think one thing you do, and you do see some of this support inside the industry, uh, not universal, obviously, is you support climate legislation. You say, you know what, we're on board. You know, carbon price is a good idea. It, it levels the playing field for anyone who produces emissions. We can work under under that under that umbrella. We're in favor of, you know, uh, uh, aggressive climate action and, and, and emissions targets. And, and to be part of that uh, process of solutions, we want to, you know, continue investing in figuring out ways to, to sequester carbon and figuring out ways to uh, create products uh, out of oil and gas that aren't combustible. Um, that's a thing. I mean, this is getting future tense, but that's a thing, for example, the Alberta government has invested in is things like producing carbon fiber from bitumen, which turns out bitumen turns out to be quite a good feedstock for, for carbon fiber if there's going to be a, uh, a bigger uh, market for that in the future. I mean, these are, you know, that's let me interrupt you, though, Chris, because I have because I've had people on from like, uh, what is it like Alberta Innovates or something like that? I've had had groups on and and I wish I could recall off the top of my head. We obviously do hundreds of interviews, but 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 a guy came on and he was presenting really compelling stuff. And 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 honestly, elements of our audience eat the guy alive. They call it greenwashing. They call him an apologist. Like there's I mean, you're a I don't want to say you're a lefty. I hate throwing around labels like that. But you even joked yourself. You said my politics are evident on Twitter. I'm using your own words. But here you are presenting that as a, as a viable future strategy for the oil sands. So, like, we get a little bit twisted up, don't we? And is there too much of a partisan nature around this? Or, or can you sort that out for me? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's conversations happening at multiple levels. And there's a weird thing, particularly around the ethical oil debate and some of the climate stuff where, I mean, you have, uh, you know, uh, conservative politicians, Jason Kenney, uh, various other uh, conservative politicians over the years, you know, just railing against the carbon price, the carbon tax in, in Alberta, you know, demonizing everything that the federal government is doing on climate change. Uh, talking about that, that, you know, that we need a war room, we need an inquiry to find out why these foreign interests came and, 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 and demonized our, our oil. And then at the same time, going to foreign capitals and saying, hey, we're the, we're the ethical oil source. We have the best environmental legislation in the world. Hey, we've got a carbon price. That's a, you know, that, that we, we, you know, how many other oil industries can say they operate under a carbon price? So when you talk out of you know, both sides of your mouth like that, eventually the conversation is going to get very, very garbled. And I think it's because there are immediate short-term political goals. I can win votes if I rail against the enemies of the oil industry. And then there's, but it's also this you know, billion-dollar business that can't pretend that the the playing field that it works under hasn't changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Let's talk about your book. Let's talk about these blueprints, because uh, we can spend a lot of time. And and again, I don't want to devalue our conversation by saying we're taking pot shots. I think your commentary is fair, Chris. Let me be clear. But we very I mean, relatively infrequently talk about how to be an optimist when it comes to issues around climate and and. For valid reasons, people have been sounding the alarm. I mean, the, the, you know, you, you, if you were being a cynic, you might describe them as the doomsday prophets. But these are people that are looking at things like trends and evidence and suggesting that we've got to do something. So what, are, what is a blueprint or two to follow to be a what does it mean to be a climate optimist? Well, basically, the, the idea of a climate optimist for me came organically out of what I've been doing for the last 15 years. I started, you know, uh, working on my first book on this in 2005. I'd done a little bit of reporting before that. 
uh, just looking at, okay, we know the problem is extraordinarily bad and deepening. And even then, you know, we thought a lot of the stuff that's happening now with the, the, the intensity, the heat waves, the amount of, of uh, Arctic ice melt, the rest of it is, is kind of getting toward the worst case end of the spectrum from what, what climate scientists were talking about 20 years ago. Uh, but in any case, I started looking for solutions, uh, not really knowing what I would find. And this book kind of came out of looking back at that 15 years and saying, you know, there's on that gloom side, on the, the sort of climate doomsday side, there's this tendency to say, you know, we, you know, we're running out of time. We haven't done anything. When are we going to start? And I've been spending 15 years watching, you know, an extraordinary explosion in technological innovation, watching, you know, technologies that absolutely in this province and beyond used to get, get me sneered at. Oh, solar power. That's never going to be a serious business. Solar power is, is you know, there were you know, there 400 megawatt solar farm going in, into southern Alberta as we speak. And look who's so, buying into solar, by the way. Look mm-hmm. who's investing in solar, right? Yeah, I mean, well, that particular uh, uh, facility, that's the Traverse Solar Farm, uh, is Amazon is, yeah. is the main customer for that. So I think just seeing that and realizing there's, a, you know, there are particularly folks younger than me, some of the younger generations who are understandably very, very worried about where things are heading, haven't heard a lot of, actually, we did some very, very heavy lifting in the last 10 years, 15 years, and, and there are tools now. And there are good people working on uh, uh, trying to build an even better toolkit. And, and that actually, just to come back to what we were talking about previously, that's a legitimate spot for the oil sands industry, for example, which does have significant investments in carbon sequestration to engage the conversation. Because whether we like it or not, you know, solar power is great. Wind, wind turbines are great. I, ride a bike, all great. Every single scenario coming out of the IPCC, the UN's group of scientists who, who model this stuff, Every, almost every single scenario they've modeled where we really significantly uh, cut carbon emissions and, and don't see ca- catastrophic climate change requires an enormous amount of, of sequestering or otherwise capturing carbon over the next you know, 20, 30 years and beyond. So, but to, to bring it back to my book, we're making extraordinary progress. It does seem, you know, any, you know, you look, oh, you know, Europe's going back to coal because, you know, because Russia invaded Ukraine and you think, oh, that's, you know, that's two steps back. But that's not actually what's happening on the ground. On the ground, you're seeing, you know, extro- you know oh, the, the majority of the world's new electricity now, when the new stuff that comes onto grids around the world is now renewable. Uh, electric vehicles are far exceeding in, in terms of, of uh, uh, demand and market support, what people thought they were going to be 10 years ago. We are actually doing quite a lot and doing more and more. And that piece of the, and more than that, if we need a lot of people to get on board, we need, we need something to work for. You can't just run away from, you know, the, 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 the disaster that's looming. You need something to work toward. You want to build something better for your kids, for your grandkids, for, you know, for the, for, uh, the rest of the world. And, and that piece of the, the conversation I don't think is, is given enough attention. And to give it attention does not dissuade or doesn't say, oh, it's not a really serious problem. It's a really serious problem. We'll be living with it for the rest of our lifetimes. Yeah, we have, uh, man, you've heard it all before too. And I, I see the bumper stickers and everything and, and people talking, but, you know, it's sort of, you know, what you say, we need people to get on board. And, the, you know, and then people say, oh, these are the folks that think that the world runs on unicorn farts. And it just is sort of written off as this naive, uh, sort of irrelevant perspective. And uh, I was I was talking. I mean, my little guy's just turned seven, uh, but he he has these observations from the back seat while we're driving all the time. I told you this before. <laughs> I would say this to John, like our little Wyatt. He's he's like really troubled by emissions, and I and I suspect they've been talking about it quite a bit in, in his grade one class. 
Um, but I was telling him, I said, kiddo, like I, I was running him through some headlines and I said, look at these like, you know, General Motors and like all these big companies, you know, Mercedes, Ooh. Daimler, Benz, Chrysler, like all these companies, you know, th- th- over the next 10 years, the transformation of industry, of consumer investment of uh, the next 10 years is going to be huge, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I guess the real question is, and, and maybe I'm asking you what your message might be, including to currently employed underemployed or regrettably unemployed, uh, skilled, experienced Canadian oil and gas workers, if managed correctly with smart political policy, with investment from industry as a result of smart political policy and other factors, can Canada remain a major player when it comes to the world's energy markets, even if we're talking about sustainable or so-called green energy? Like, does the window have to be closing on Canada's energy industry, like a lot of people, I think, fear that it is. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's that comes out of the partisan nature of the political debate. Um, you know, when when you get outside Canada and people talk about Canada, they talk about Canada having you know extraordinary resources across the board. Uh, they talk about Canada having actually you know, considered somewhat leading or among the leading sort of policy environments, and that that includes things like like carbon pricing, but 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 goes beyond that. These, are, I mean. Uh, there are not a lot of, of major oil producing countries that have managed to put a national carbon price in place, for example. But then beyond that, you know, this is a lot of heavy work. This is a lot of like building infrastructure. This is a lot of, you know, like I've spent most of the summer uh, doing these trade shows for, for a client who's uh, uh, basically you know, builds and, 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 and markets and distributes electrical components. We're moving more and more to electrification. This is a you know sunrise industry for them, for electricians, for electrical engineers, for for uh, companies that, that that build out electrical infrastructure, and that and they're not alone. I mean, the, one of the other things you, when you when you get to Ontario, people who are you know, sort of tuned into this talk about Ontario having you know a lot of resources that go into things like car batteries and solar panels and things like that. So this is not you know we you know we're gonna. You shut down all our existing industries and 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 you know move on to something else. There's huge opportunities across the board, and again, in the oil and gas industry, which also will have to invest a lot of money and a lot of skilled people in reducing its own emissions. And you know, eventually, long term, yes, probably looking at at declining demand and and having to adjust to that. But even in the in the in, you know sort of immediate near term. If you're looking for where where would I be interested in working in the oil and gas sector? Well, maybe you know emissions reduction and mm-hmm. and rethink and and efficiency and these sorts of things are where you want to be pointing yourself. And these are not those are not bad news stories. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, on a number of fronts, positive in the sense of the environment, positive in the sense of the economy and employment, etc. I mean, there's a lot of reason for optimism, like you said. Yeah. How to be a climate optimist. There is a blueprint. And Chris Turner's written all about it. And the good news is, is you can get his book. Chris, where can people find your book? Well, you can certainly find it uh, online at the, all the usual suspects. But I would strongly urge you to go to many of the excellent independent bookstores across Alberta and across Canada. Uh, 
uh, you know, the, uh, you probably have your favorite and they will certainly have it in stock or will happily order it for you. But yeah, it should be, uh, should be available, you know, wherever you normally buy books. Good stuff, my man. The person, the house recommendation is Audrey's books here in Edmonton, but there's a lot of great bookstores that are doing amazing work and we appreciate everybody that supports local. I like this comment here from Mark Doran. He's a good friend of the show. I don't know if you know Mark, but he's, he's, Mark does a ton of good work. I think it's the Polluter Pay Federation off the top of my head. Mark, apologies if it's not, but he's really working to find accountability for, for those that are responsible for the orphan wells across the province. And he says a lot of us are not against oil and gas. We just hold that it can actually be done legally, safely and ethically. And we can do it that way rather than spread propaganda, which uh, I think is a fair comment as well. Chris, before we thank you for your time, is there anything that when we sign off, you're going to go, I wish I would have said that. I wish I would have mentioned that. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you want to put in front of our audience? Uh, you know what I would say, because I know that your audience isn't just in Alberta, but I am talking to a lot of Albertans. This is a huge good news story for Alberta, the fact that we are transitioning to a, to a different energy future. Alberta, as we speak, is the leading jurisdiction in Canada for new renewable energy installations by a wide margin. Hmm. There are big opportunities. Let's let's go get them. Love it. That's Chris Turner. You can follow him on Twitter at The Turner, and you can pick up his new book, How to Be a Climate Optimist, Blueprints for a better world. Again, you can get in touch with the show anytime. Real Talk RJ is our hashtag through the day as the podcast lands. You can let us know what you think about it. And of course, our email inbox is always open. You'll find all the details, including where you can buy your Real Talk merch, snapback caps, golf balls, studio mugs. John, we've got knit wool toques with the nice leather Real Talk logo on it. Quality them. stuff. Super quality stuff. Fitted tees, classic tees, and more at ryanjesperson.com. Our friends at Landscape Edmonton want to remind you that there's still time. There's still time to bring your outdoor space to life. There might be a tight timeline, but their team has worked on tight timelines before, helping their clients achieve not just satisfactory outcomes, but perfection. They want your vision for your outdoor space to be realized, whether that's a beautiful retaining wall, maybe some of these edible garden boxes. I mean, let's be honest, it is too late for you to plant those. But we picked up a couple tomato plants. Grocery store the other day, picked up a couple tomato plants, yeah. transplanted them into the garden. Looks like I raised them from birth. <laughs> that's the way to do it. Oh, baby, they're looking good. <laughs> Of course, they do water features and stone patios and outdoor kitchens and everything else you can imagine. Mike and his team have been earning the referrals and return business of their clients for more than 20 years. You can check out Eden Landscaping's portfolio online today at landscapeedmonton.ca. And we wanted to give a special mention to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park because Miracle Treat Day 2022 is coming up. That's right. You want to circle your calendar for Thursday, August 11th. That's a week from today. A week from today, every blizzard sold will raise money for the Stollery Children's Hospital. Okay, now their locations, Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road go above and beyond what's asked of the Dairy Queens. It's not profits that they share with the Stollery. It's the entire ticket. If you pay $4 for your blizzard, $4 is going to go to the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. Through this commitment, they've raised seven figures over the years, and they're sure proud of it. You know you can call the locations and pre-order your blizzards. Let's say you want to order 30 of them to the kids' summer camp, or you want to bring 20 of them into the office for the day. Who doesn't love to be surprised with a blizzard? You can get in touch with them, order your 
pre-ordered blizzards at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Don't forget, a week from today, it's Miracle Treat Day. That's Thursday, August 11th. Coming up on tomorrow's show, it's going to be a little bit different. Typically on Fridays, of course, we'll present our Real Talk Roundtable, but we've got a unique opportunity, and so we're going to take advantage of it. After we check in with Sapria Devetti, that's in her regular Friday time slot at 8.40 Mountain, 10.40 Eastern, we're going to check in with, well, the guy who wants to lead Canada's Conservatives forward. He's got a tough row to hoe. He knows that. But he's still showing up, including at last night's leaders debate. We'll get him to recap it all. Jean Charest will join us live on Friday's Real Talk. You can catch it at 9 a.m. Mountain or later. We'll see you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General Manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.